Welcome to another inspirational podcast from Junction 28 Church. We're so glad that you've decided to join us today and know that God wants to bless you with this message. We'd love to hear about it, so why not tell us on our Facebook or Twitter pages? If you would like further information about who we are, check out our website www.thejunction28church.com We hope you enjoy this message. do is share for a little a few moments this evening and then see how the Lord leads but I I want to then be praying for a few people and along the lines of people being filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, that's sort of where I want to go this evening so we'll see how we how we get on now what time do you usually finish 10 o'clock as the Lord leads, so oh, that's very dangerous to say that to, to a preacher. Some preachers are so long, they don't need a clock, they need a calendar, don't they? And uh, but I see the little clock up there, so I will try and sort of keep to time, but we'll allow a little bit of time at the end to pray for some people and to see uh, signs following or confirming the word of God. And uh, that's where we're going this evening. So if you've got your Bible, please turn with me to a well-known passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 1. And as soon as I start reading this, you'll be aware of uh, this portion of Scripture. I think as Pentecostals, if we are Pentecostals this evening, then Acts is always a good book for us, isn't it? Especially Acts 1 and Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 1, and we'll read a few verses, and there'll be some things going up on the screen behind me this evening, and uh, we'll see where we, where we go. But I title my message this evening, if you're into titles and you take notes and, and all that sort of thing, um, famous last words. And we're going to look now at some of the last words of Jesus before he ascended to the Father. Okay, Acts 1, verse 4, down to verse 9. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, his disciples, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. Notice the word gift there, and if you're happy to underline in your Bible, underline the word gift. It is a gift, okay? But wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized, filled, immersed, submerged with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And then Jesus gets them back on track. He said to them, it's not for you to know. So there's some things that we need to know and there's some things we don't need to know. All right? It's not for you to know, quite clear there, the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But this is the important thing. But you will receive power When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, that word witnesses can mean martyrs, 
all right? Martyrs and witnesses is the same word. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Famous last words. Over the course of time, over the years, there's been some famous last words that people have uttered, literally, before they've passed away. We're going to put a few up on the screen, and uh, there will be a special prize, um, if any of you can guess any of these. Your special prize will be in heaven, okay? It won't be... <laughs> It'll last longer up there, but um, let's see if anyone knows who uttered these last words um, before they passed away. <laughs> I'm going to the bathroom to read. I'm going to start with the easy ones first, okay? <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to the bathroom to read. Anyone? Elvis Presley. Does someone get that? Oh, are you an Elvis fan? Going to the bathroom to read Elvis Presley. Look at the next one. A little bit more difficult. How were the receipts tonight at Madison Square Garden? This is a hard one. This is a man called P.T. Barnum who was a circus owner and a showman. And that's where his heart was. How were the sales tonight at Madison Square Garden? Look at the next one. I have no last words. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough already. <laughs> Churchill? No, no. Uh, Karl Marx. Karl Marx. Give this one a go. Next one. <laughs> that was a great game of golf, guys. Who's that? Bing Crosby. Well done. Bing Crosby. I think he died actually on the golf course, didn't he? Uttered those words. That was a great game. Of golf. And then the final one, very hard, this one. Actually, these are quite nice words to say at the end of your life. I have always tried to do the right thing. I'll give it to you. Grover Cleveland, the 22nd and the 24th President of the United States. Famous last words, and often someone's last words reveal what was important to them in life. So for someone like Bing Crosby, golf was important to him. Someone like P.T. Barnum, sales and attendance at one of his shows, that was important to him. Grover Cleveland, what was important to him? I've always tried to do the right thing. Someone's last words often reveal what is important. And the last words of Jesus 
reveal what's important for us today and what isn't important for us today. What isn't important is date setting the second coming. Working out exactly when and where and how Jesus is going to return and, and get it all sorted out. It's, it's not for you to know. And over the course of time, really the last 2,000 years, there's been people who have uh, date set when Jesus is going to come back again. And uh, 1988, there, a book came out from uh, a brother on the other side of the Atlantic. Let me put it that way. A Christian man who was a mathematician, and he sort of worked out, and he put into his computer all the sevens in Daniel. And trying to work out exactly when Jesus was going to return. And he worked out that Jesus was going to come back on the 1st of September, 1988. And he published a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Well, people were selling their property. Giving away all their money. And on the 1st of September... A year later, that same man wrote another book. 89 reasons why Jesus will return in 1989. I kid you not. And the 89th reason was because he didn't come last year. <laughs> and people are buying these books. It's not for you to know. And sometimes we can get preoccupied and distracted with doing things and getting involved in things we just don't need to know. And sometimes the enemy gets us distracted actually on good things. It's not always bad things, immorality or sin. Often he'll take a good concept and we can concentrate on that. Well, it's good. It's about the Lord's second coming. And we get caught up with it. Jesus said, it's not for you to know. It's not important. Leave that with God. There are certain things in life we've got to leave with God and certain things that we have to get involved with. There's certain things that God gets involved with, certain things that we get involved with, and we mustn't mix the two up. What isn't important for us is exactly when Jesus is coming back. The important thing is he is coming back. And the important thing is, before he returns, we've got a job to do. You know, the disciples had some theological questions. When, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom? It's not for you to know. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to get caught up with. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Don't get caught up with date setting and all the details of my return and, the, and the, the future kingdom, get caught up with local, national, and international evangelism. And that's where I want to go this evening. The last words of Jesus. And his last words should be our first priority. They say that if you're in the army, I've never been in the army, but in the army, you always obey the last command 
from your commanding officer. And until he gives you a new command, you keep on obeying the last command. The last command of Jesus, wait for the power from on high. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. Don't concentrate on this, concentrate on this. His last words should be our first priority. So five points this evening to ponder, all beginning with the letter P. So it must be anointed. And why P? Because you always have P's on a Sunday. First of all, we see the promise. You shall receive power. Not you may or you might. You shall receive power. And when the Lord makes a promise, he keeps it. And we live in a society, we live in a world, sometimes even in church life, where many broken promises People don't keep their word, sometimes intentionally and sometimes accidentally. But we live in a world and a society where people don't always do what they say they're going to do. And that could be the same in a marriage. We let our wives and our husbands down sometimes. Politicians will let us down, saying, I will do this if you vote for me. And we vote for them, and it often doesn't work out that way. Broken promises. And that's the world that we live in, but when the Lord makes a promise, he always keeps that promise. Always keeps it. He says, I will send my spirit, and he has. He says, I will come again, and he will. He says, I will build my church, and he is. Because when the Lord says something, he always keeps it. And I understand that in the Bible, there's 366 promises of God. One for every day of the year, and even one for a leap year. Isn't that great? It's a God of detail. Because when he makes a promise, he will keep that promise. And the difficulty is, when the Lord gives us a promise, we often want it there and then. So the Lord promises something, and often it's actually for the future. And timing, therefore, is very important. But when the Lord promises something and gives us a word, we want it straight away. Again, that's the world that we live in. We don't want to wait for anything. We're very, very impatient. Everything these days at a click of a button. Have you noticed that? And uh, we have instant coffee and instant um, porridge and microwaves and lastminute.com. When I was growing up, well, when we booked a holiday, actually we, we spent like nine months planning a holiday. Went to the same place every year, mind you, <laughs> Butlins. Um, but we would plan it for nine months. And we would count down the days and we would get ready for it. And when it came, oh, we were so excited. We'd start packing five weeks before and and and... Looking forward to it. But these days, what do you do? Well, I've got a few days off at the end of this week. Let's, let's get some flights to, to wherever. Let's, let's book a last-minute holiday. Lastminute.com. Okay. Because we live in a world where at the click of a button, we get it when we want it. 
And we try to bring that into our Christianity with us. Our culture tries to come into our Christianity. And we press the button, God, you have to do it now. He doesn't work according to our time. He works according to his time. And I want to say, if God has given you a promise, and I just feel this, this evening there are promises all over this, uh, this meeting hall. Uh, God's given you a promise, and it hasn't come to fruition yet. Just keep waiting. Just be patient. Because when we're not patient, we start to take matters into our own hands. Have you ever done that? Well, God, you're taking a bit of time here. Maybe you've forgotten about me. And we start to take it back. And let me help God out. Let me say God doesn't need your help. If he created the world out of nothing, he doesn't need your help with this. He's got it. He's got it. And that was the problem, I think, with Abraham. God promised him a son. You're going to be the father of, of many, many people, the father of many, what the word Abraham uh, means, but there was no son. And so he tried to help God out. And when we try and help God out and speed things along a little bit, we give birth to Ishmael's, not Isaac's. Don't give birth to an Ishmael. Wait for the Isaac. And if God's given you a promise, it will come to pass. He made a promise, you shall receive power. Who are the people to whom the promise is given? He said, you shall receive power. Speaking to the, uh, the first century disciples, and what a motley crew they were. I tell you, if I was choosing a team... You know, Peter and Thomas, they weren't the sort of people that I would choose. But when Jesus was putting his team together, he was very strategic. People of different personalities. People that naturally wouldn't get on with each other. A tax collector and a zealot. Wow, I'll tell you. They didn't normally get on. Zealots were against the Romans. And the tax collectors, like Matthew, would work for the Romans. But Jesus was very strategic when he brought his disciples together, different personalities, different backgrounds, different types of people. And Jesus said, this promise is for you. And that's good news tonight, because whatever your background, the good news of the Holy Spirit is for you. It's for you. You might say, well, I don't deserve it. I don't, you know, uh, surely God can't give this to me. It's for you this evening. And it wasn't just for his first century disciples, because in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 2, Peter said, this promise is for you, your children, and your children's children. In fact, all those that the Lord your God will call. So this evening, the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you. And so often we think, well, I don't deserve it. If God really knew, you know, where I've come from... <laughs> If God really knew what I'd done in my life, or if this preacher really knew, well, this isn't for me, it is for you. And we see the fulfillment in Acts chapter 2, the coming 
10 days later of the Holy Spirit and the, 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 the prophecy of Joel. And is it just for males? No, it is also for females. Because your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Not just for males, but also for females. Regardless of age, your old men will dream dreams. They'll look back. Your young men will see visions. They'll look forward. So what I'm saying is that regardless of your background, your personality type, regardless of your gender, male or female, regardless of your age, young, old, or a little bit in between, the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you. And people have said, but I'm not good enough. I've literally heard people say that. I'm not good enough to receive this gift. And I want to say that's true because gifts are not deserved. Gifts are not earned. What's earned? Wages are earned. Yes, if I do a week's work, I deserve my wages, or these days, salary. That's what I've earned. I will get what I have earned. But gifts are different. You don't earn gifts. In fact, you can't earn gifts. If I gave you a gift at Christmas, it's because I really like you, not because you've earned it. Can you see? That's why it says the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's what we've worked for, death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And the Holy Spirit is a gift. It means we have nothing to do with it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift given by grace. And we've already heard tonight about Martin Luther, 500 years uh, on Tuesday, the 31st of October, 1517, when he nailed the 95 Thesis against the door of uh, Wittenberg uh, University Church to debate what was wrong during that time with the Catholic Church. Broke open the, the, the whole thing called the Reformation. Let me say, Reformation actually begins in people. The Reformation could only come because Martin Luther was reformed in his heart. He'd been changed. You can't change the world unless you've been changed. Revival starts in people. You've all gone very quiet now. We often think revival's just going to come down. Oh, there it is. Revival starts in people. When we get revived, society gets revived. The world gets revived. And Martin Luther came to this realization, as Nathan has been saying, so excellently tonight, this realization that the gospel is a gift. Grace is a gift. You have nothing to do with it. That actually the gospel is not about trying, but it's everything to do with trusting. And this realization that we're justified by faith, that I don't earn it, I don't work for it by doing all this prayer and fasting and going up you know, the, the steps on my knees and beating my body, but I'll gain favor with God. That's not how gifts come. 
And I say that tonight because we often feel I've got to be good enough to receive the Holy Spirit. You will never be good enough. You will never be good enough. It's a gift. It's not a wage. It's not a salary. It's a gift. So who is the Holy Spirit given to? People like you and people like me. Whatever our background, our age, male or female, tonight, it's for us. Number three, there we go. It's a promise of power. First of all, we've seen the promise, we've seen the people. Number three, the power. It's a promise of power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Junimus, where today we get the word dynamite from. Now, of course, in those days, they didn't understand what the word dynamite was. Invented many, many years later. But we understand today the word dynamite. That's the word being used there. You will receive dynamite, power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And let me say, if dynamite went off in this building this evening, you would look around. Actually, you might not have a seat to sit on. In other words, if dynamite went off, you would know it. You wouldn't think, oh, I think, I think that was something. You would know it. Because there's power. You've got to stand up and take notice. You will know it or not. And when you receive the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon your life, you will know it. And guess what? Other people will know it as well. Something happens. For us all, it, it could be different. I remember when I received what we would call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It was Sunday evening at my little sort of Pentecostal church. I was about 16, 17, newly saved through the Billy Graham crusade of Mission England. And um, a little while later, they thought well, Stephen needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I didn't quite understand what it was all about. And they were trying to lead me in the, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it says, say banana backwards and all this sort of stuff. And I, I, didn't, I just didn't get it. And that night at church, nothing happened. And I went home, went to bed early. And I was just lying in bed and I thought I'd missed it. Because I had this mentality that God was only in a certain place at a certain time. And I've got to wait till next Sunday now. Because God can only move on a Sunday, and God can only move in a, in a church building, and God can only move through an ordained minister, and I thought, I'm going to have to wait for another time. And then just that deep impression, actually, I can ask God right now. I don't need to wait another week. I don't need to wait for the, a future time. And I said, Lord, will you fill me tonight right now with your Holy Spirit. I don't understand it all. Let me say 30 odd years later, I still don't understand it all. But Lord, this is a gift that you've got for me and I receive that gift. 
And that's what you do with gifts, isn't it? You just receive them and say, thank you. You don't just turn it away. You, you say, thank you, I receive that gift. And Lord, I receive the gift of your Holy Spirit. And there in my room, I started to speak in a language that I'd never, ever learned. I was no good at languages at school. Okay, but here was a language I'd never learned. Speaking, as we would call it, speaking in, in tongues. And God filled me with his spirit that night, over 30 years ago. And I think now every single day, I, I try to speak in tongues every single day. A wonderful uh, prayer language, wonderful way of building yourself up. And that night, as I was filled with the Holy Spirit, God revealed to me certain things about my future. Certain things about my life. And I actually wrote them down, and somewhere I've still, I've still got those notes. God revealing certain things to me, not for then, but for the future. And now able to look back after 30 years and see some of these things come to pass. My point is this, when I was filled with the Holy Spirit, when the power of God came on me, I was changed. Something happened. When dynamite goes off, something happens. People know. My wife's experience of the Holy Spirit was very different. My wife, Deborah, is from a, we say, a, a more brethren uh, background, a non-Pentecostal background. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit died out with the early church and Right at the beginning, you know, the early church needed the Holy Spirit to sort of kickstart the church and get this aeroplane off the ground. And, but then when the word of God came, you don't need the gifts of the Spirit anymore, that sort of teaching. A brethren Bible college that actually taught that, and that sort of Pentecostals are a little bit weird. I think she came to realize actually Pentecostals are very weird. And um, so a lot of sort of, I would say, wrong teaching, a lot of fear... Um, then she marries a Pentecostal, joins a Pentecostal church, becomes the, the wife of a Pentecostal minister. The family thinks she's lost her mind. And what cult has she got involved with and all this sort of... I remember going over to America once and certain members of her family wouldn't even let me in the house. I didn't like my jokes, I don't think. Or but they didn't let me in. They thought I was really very, very odd. Of course, I'm not. Of course I'm not. And so there was a lot of fear with Deborah. And one evening, I, I remember it well, over 20 years ago now, she went forward to be prayed for. And as I think someone laid their hand upon her, she fell on the floor. Not copying because she's never seen that happen before. She wasn't into the God channel or anything like that. Never seen this. But as soon as the hand went on her, she went out on the floor. And I think started laughing. And God was dealing with that fear, saying, this is a gift I've got for you. I'm not going to give you something bad. You know, if a, if a son asks a father for something, he's not going to give, you know, a scorpion or a, a stone. You know, and your heavenly father will give you something good. And God was dealing with her, and a few days later, she started to speak in a language that she'd never learned. My point is this, that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, something happens. You shall receive power. 
The word power means ability to do. So you will receive the ability to do what in your own strength you cannot do. You shall receive power. You shall receive the ability. You shall receive boldness. And what do we see with the disciples? What do we see with Peter? The same Peter who denied the Lord those days earlier. It says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and he stood up with the eleven and was bold. The first reference to cricket. He stood up with the eleven and was bold. Oh, you've got to laugh because that's the best I'm going to do tonight. Something happened to Peter. A few weeks earlier, I've never met the man. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. But then Peter, the same Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he stands up, is bold, preaches to the crowd, 3,000 people come to Christ. That's not, that's not a bad day's work, is it? That's a good day at the office. That's good to put on the website or in the newsletter. Not 3,000 sermons to see one saved. One sermon, 3,000 people cut to the heart saying, what must we do to be saved? Wow. Oh, for those days again. Why not? Why not? He stood up and he was different. He had a boldness. Acts chapter 4 the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what? They went out preaching the word of God boldly. The context of Acts chapter 4, they're being threatened by the authorities. Do not preach in the name of Jesus. If you do, we will put you to death. If you do, then we will put you in a prison. Do not preach in this name. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they go out and they preach even more boldly. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will give you a boldness to do what you cannot do in your own strength. Number four, what's the purpose? So what's the purpose of the filling or the power of the Holy Spirit? What's the purpose of the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Let me just say here, as a good Pentecostal, The filling of the Holy Spirit is not primarily to exercise the gifts. I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all nine of them. And we should see more use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But the primary purpose that we are filled with the Holy Spirit is not just to use the gifts. It's not just so we have a good time in our meetings. Now, we all want that. We all love the presence of the Holy Spirit and there's peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We love the liberty that the Holy Spirit brings, but that's not the primary purpose of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not so that we'll get goosebumps. Ooh. Get goosebumps on our goosebumps. That's not the purpose. If we think it is, we've missed it. The purpose of the filling of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus is that you and I might be witnesses. So actually, putting it this way, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, not for us, but for them. I think I'll say that again, because I think that's important. 
We're not filled with the Holy Spirit just for us, but actually for a lost world. It's for them. And sometimes in our meetings, I'm speaking just very generally, I'm not speaking about J28, I'm speaking just very generally as I travel around, we can be very self-centered. It's all about me. It's all about me, Jesus. It's not about you. It's all about them. We are here to reach a lost world. Yes, we're to have good meetings, we're to enjoy our meetings and to be built up, but that's not the only purpose. Somebody once said that the church is the only club that exists for its non-members. Yeah? Every other club you think of, well, you've got to be a member to be part of this club. You're not a member, well, you can't, it's very exclusive. But we exist for our non-members. We're here for them. I remember a couple of weeks ago, maybe months ago now, we were in Scotland and doing a bit of a tour of Scotland and we went to St. Andrew's Golf, the golf club place. Uh, very exclusive. And I wanted a selfie. So I was doing this sort of tour of Scotland, all these famous landmarks. And I wanted to go into the clubhouse at St. Andrew's to have just a picture taken. I was in my jeans and everything. And, and uh, you know, I went into the door, through the door. And there were people in there in their blazers and their ties. And uh, I walk in and they start to turn around. And this burly receptionist, not a woman, a man, a burly receptionist, got up and said, excuse me, this is just for members. I said, well, I, I just, you know, I've come from England. And I, <laughs> that probably put him off, but I, <laughs> I, just want a, I just want a picture just to say I've been to St. Andrew's golf, golf House. And he said, sorry, sir, this is just for members. Can you leave? So I got a picture taken outside. Very exclusive. This is, this is for us. What are you doing here? The church should never be like that. We exist not just for ourselves, but we exist for them. And when we forget that, when we make church all about us and how we're going to be happy and we're going to do things our way and what we're comfortable with, we've missed it. Let's not be so exclusive that we forget a lost world. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, not just so that we'll feel good. We're filled with the Holy Spirit so that we might be witnesses to a lost world. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. He did not say, you shall be my theologians. He did not say, you will be my experts. Or you will be my Bible scholars. He says, you will be my witnesses. Let me ask you this question. In a court of law, what does a witness do? It's rhetorical. A witness in a court of law merely says what they have seen and what they have heard. Basically, yes? In a court of law, does a witness need to be an expert in the law? No. 
That's the job of the barrister. The barrister needs to know the law inside out. He's got to fight the case or she's got to fight the case. A witness, when it goes into a court of law, just says, Your Honour, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I experienced, and that's it. They don't need to know all the ins and outs of English law. Thank God. They just say, this is what I saw, this is what I experienced. You shall be my witnesses, not you shall be my experts. I say this because sometimes we feel before we can tell people about Christ, we've got to know the Bible inside out. We've got to know the Greek and the Hebrew and we've got to know where sort of Cain got his wife from and did Adam and Eve have a belly button and all these, who were the Nephilim and all this sort of thing. What if they ask me a difficult question? Well, I've got to know my Bible inside out before I do anything. If you do that, you'll never do anything because you will never know all of the Bible. You will never know all about God. I actually think in heaven, we're not going to know everything about God. It's a challenge. Because I've got to know all about God's ways and how he works before I start witnessing because they might ask me a difficult question and oh, I look stupid. And that's sometimes why we don't witness. We're called not to be experts. We're called to be witnesses. And that should take the pressure off us. So if we're asked something, we just tell people, this is what I've seen and this is what I've heard. Well, what about this difficult verse? And I'm just going to tell you what I've seen and what I've heard. Okay. It says of uh, Andrew in John chapter 1, that after he found Jesus, what did he do? He went off and found his brother Simon, uh, Simon the fisherman, and he said, I have found the Messiah. He didn't give him a Bible study. He didn't give him the Greek or the Hebrew. He just said, look, I want to introduce you to someone that I've just found. And the found became the finder. Okay. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She went into the village after meeting with Jesus and says, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Didn't know all about the Bible. You know, she got mixed up with the mountains and worship and that sort of thing. She, you know, she didn't quite understand it all. But she'd found someone and she pointed people to Christ. She was a witness. John chapter 9, the man that was born blind. The Pharisees were getting very theological. Who sinned? Has he sinned or his parents or whatever? And he says, look, I, I don't understand your questions. All I know is this. Once I was blind and now I can see. We're not called to be experts. If you know the Bible inside out, hallelujah. Good. It's good to know the Bible. I have to say that being the vice principal of a Bible college. It's good to learn the scriptures. It's good to know a little bit of Greek, maybe a little bit of Hebrew to sort of really understand what's being said. But don't think I've got to know everything before I can be a witness. You could be, if you found Jesus or if Jesus has found you, you can go off and find someone else and say, look, I don't know all your answers, but come see a man who told me all 
I ever did. Witnesses, you shall be witnesses. And then finally, the places to witness. So we've got the promise, we've got the people, we've got the power, the purpose. What about the place? Where are we to be witnesses? Jesus, again, is being very specific. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, notice he's not saying Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. But he's saying, and. Because sometimes we feel, I've got to win, I've got to win my town before I'll go anywhere else. And once I've won my town, then I'll go a bit wider. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying then, he's saying and. In other words, we witness to the world at the same time as witnessing to our community. Okay? We're to do it all. National, international, and local. Witnesses in Jerusalem. Where's Jerusalem? Where's your Jerusalem? It's your locality. It's where you live. It's where you work. It's where you study. And isn't that a difficult place to witness? I don't know about you, I can easily get on a plane and go into the streets of a, I don't know, Macedonia or somewhere and preach Christ, that's fine because they don't know me and I can get back on a plane and come home. But when it's amongst people that know you and work with you and study with you and live with you, that's very, very hard. But we're to be witnesses in our locality. That is difficult, but that's where we're to be a, a witness. We're to be witnesses in Judea. Where's our Judea? It's our nation. The nation that we're part of. Do we show an interest in our nation? Or is it, well, I'm just going to concentrate on South Normanton? You know, do we take an interest in what's happening in Britain? We need to take an interest. We need to understand the times that we are living in. We're living in very difficult times in our nation. We need to be a witness in our nation. Samaria, what Samaria? Samaria is amongst the people in our locality that are from a different culture. Maybe the despised, maybe those that are different, those from a, a different religion, those from a different culture, different background, living where we live. So we don't have to get on a, a plane, they're actually here. And all around us, people from different cultures. And we need to minister to them and find creative ways of ministering to those from other nations and other religions on our very doorstep. That's a great challenge. Remember when we were living in Bristol, we lived in a, an area that was with a lot of Muslims and uh, in our street, uh, there were several Muslims and there was this lady called Mrs. Malik. 
who lived a, a couple of doors down, and uh, her husband had died, and she had three sons, three very tall sons, burly sons, who really protected her and looked after her. And uh, especially my wife Deborah, much more than me, thought, how can we get into this home? How can we, how can we minister to our Samaria, someone unreached that's on our very doorstep, just a few doors down? And uh, Deborah likes to cook. So De Deborah decided to um, cook something very either British or very American and knocked on the door and took it to Mrs. Malik on a, a plate and uh, couldn't get through the door because the sons were there, you know. Okay, what is it you want? Uh, we've just got some food for your mother and yourself, of course. Thank you. And then shut the door on us. Notice a couple of days later, or a week later, there was a knock at the door. And I think it was one of the sons to start with, brought the same plate back, but with some of their food on it. Some Pakistani food, I think. And um, for several weeks, if not months, actually, the plate went backwards and forwards <laughs> in Old Cove Road. And I think as Deborah went over, she got a little bit further and then a little bit further, and then she got into the hallway and into the living room and started to befriend Mrs. Malik. I think we were able to give her a tract and give her something to read, and, and then we moved from Bristol to come up north. A couple of, I think, I, I guess a couple of years ago, we went back to that street and we thought, well, let's just knock on the door and see if Mrs. Malik is still alive. And and uh, Deborah went and knocked on the door, and she was overjoyed to see Deborah all those years later, must be about 15 years later, and still recognized her. Now, here was a lady that would have nothing to do, very shut off, very exclusive, very afraid in many ways, but as a way of getting in. I think there are keys, you see. There are keys that will unlock situations, and we need to just find what those keys are. What's going to unlock this situation? How can I get into this home and, and build a relationship with these people? Where's your Samaria? Samaritans, in biblical times, of course, very looked down on. No, the Jews didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans. Samaritans came about because there was intermarriage between Jews and Gentiles. And, you know, Jews going from the north to the south to Jerusalem for a feast, they would go around Samaria, had hours or if not days onto their journey. They didn't want to go through Samaria. They wanted to go around Samaria. They felt so strongly about that. But interesting that Jesus actually stopped in Samaria and spoke not just to a Samaritan, but to a woman. And it would seem an immoral woman, breaking all these, down all these barriers. And uh, the Bible is interesting, isn't it? It says the disciples came back and it says, and they were surprised to see Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. I bet they were. Because it wasn't done. But Jesus crossing those barriers, here was someone that needs God. What am I saying? What's your Samaria? What's the people in your location, in your school, in your workplace, on your street, that actually are from another nation, a different culture? Maybe that are very afraid. Maybe uh, society looks down upon them, no time for them. How can you minister to your 
some area. And I trust that God will give you some ideas. And then finally, the ends of the earth. We are to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. While we're in this meeting this evening, half the world's population have still not heard about Jesus. What's that? Three to four billion people have not heard about the first coming of Jesus. We love the second coming of Jesus, don't we? But they've not even heard about the first coming of Jesus. They might have heard about Coca-Cola, but they've not heard about Jesus. Half the world's population, 17,000 people groups, tribes, that are completely unreached with the gospel. 3,000 languages that have absolutely no Bible in those languages. Now we rejoice all that God is doing. We rejoice that we can have good meetings together and we can meet in this way. We go to a local church. Half the world's population can't do that. There is no local church. They are completely unreached. And in the midst of our ministry to our Jerusalem and to our Samaria and our nation, we've got to minister to our world. We've got to do something. For some of you, it might mean going on a missions trip. And we had a testimony this morning from a, a guy that came back from Macedonia, Jeff. Is it 71 years of age? And he stood up and testified in church this morning, the first mission trip he ever went on. 71 years of age. Don't say you're too old. Oh, they'll leave it to the younger ones. If you can get on a plane, <laughs> all right, you can go on a mission trip. Just for three days, I think it was. You can do something. If you can't get on a plane, you can't go, then show an interest in world missions. Pray, give. Give to those that maybe are able to go, but have an interest in the ends of the earth. Because Jesus said, this gospel shall be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. That vision in, in Revelation before the throne with people from every tribe and kindred and, 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 and creed all there before the throne, worshipping the Lamb. So why do we receive the Holy Spirit? Why have the promise? Why have the promise of power? It's not just for ourselves. It's for a lost world. Let's never, ever forget that. And maybe God is challenging some of you to get more involved in witnessing and more involved in, in evangelism and in mission. And you might say, well, I'm not, a, I'm not an evangelist. You know, I'm not an Ephesians 4.11 evangelist. Have you met an Ephesians 4.11 evangelist? You know, they just have to say a few words and people get saved. They can preach from the telephone directory and people will get saved. It's quite amazing, the anointing, because God's gifted them that way. I wish I could do that. I've tried to copy Billy Graham on many, many occasions. I've written down the sermons. I practiced. You know, I put on the American accent and the suit and pointed the finger. If you came in a coach, you, it'll wait for you and all that. And nothing happens because God hasn't gifted me to be an evangelist in the Ephesians 4.11 sense of the word. But I'm to be a witness. And we're all to be witnesses. I might say, I don't know the Bible inside out. Well, hallelujah for that. 
There's only one person that you need to know to be a witness, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've had an experience of God, you can bear witness to the world. Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. What I want to do is share for a little, a few moments this evening, and then see how the Lord leads, but I, I want to then be praying for a few people. And along the lines of people being filled with the Holy Spirit, and uh, that's sort of where I want to go this evening. So we'll see how we, how we get on. Now, what time do you usually finish? Wow. 10 o'clock? <laughs> As the Lord leads? Oh, that's very dangerous to say that to, to a preacher. Some preachers are so long, they don't need a clock. They need a calendar, don't they? <laughs> and uh, but I see the little clock up there, so I will try and sort of keep to time. But we'll allow a little bit of time at the end to pray for some people, and to see uh, signs following or confirming the Word of God. And uh, that's where we're going this evening. So if you've got your Bible, please turn with me to a well-known passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 1. And uh, as soon as I start reading this, you'll be aware of... Uh, this portion of scripture, I think as Pentecostals, if we are Pentecostals this evening, then Acts is always a good book for us, isn't it? Especially Acts 1 and Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 1, and we'll read a few verses, and there'll be some things going up on the screen behind me this evening, and uh, we'll see where we, where we go. But I title my message this evening, if you're into titles and you take notes and, and all that sort of thing, um, famous last words, and we're going to look now at some of the last words of Jesus before he ascended to the Father. Okay, Acts 1, verse 4, down to verse 9. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, his disciples, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. Notice the word gift there, and if you're happy to underline in your Bible, underline the word gift. It is a gift, okay? But wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized, filled, immersed, submerged with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And then Jesus gets them back on track. He said to them, it's not for you to know. So there's some things that we need to know and there's some things we don't need to know. All right. It's not for you to know quite clear there, the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but this is the important thing, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, that word witnesses can mean martyrs, 
all right? Martyrs and witnesses is the same word. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Famous last words. Over the course of time, over the years, there's been some famous last words that people have uttered, literally, before they've passed away. We're going to put a few up on the screen, and uh, there will be a special prize, um, if any of you can guess any of these. Your special prize will be in heaven, okay? It won't be... <laughs> It'll last longer up there, but um, let's see if anyone knows who uttered these last words um, before they passed away. <laughs> I'm going to the bathroom to read. I'm going to start with the easy ones first, okay? <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to the bathroom to read. Anyone? Elvis Presley. Did someone get that? Oh, are you an Elvis fan? Going to the bathroom to read Elvis Presley. Look at the next one. A bit more difficult. How were the receipts tonight at Madison Square Garden? This is a hard one. This is a man called P.T. Barnum who was a circus owner and a showman. And that's where his heart was. How were the sales tonight at Madison Square Garden? Look at the next one. I have no last words. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough already. <laughs> Churchill? No, no. Uh, Karl Marx. Karl Marx. Give this one a go. Next one. <laughs> that was a great game of golf, guys. Who's that? Bing Crosby. Well done. Bing Crosby. I think he died actually on the golf course, didn't he? Uttered those words. That was a great game. Of golf. And then the final one, very hard, this one. Actually, these are quite nice words to say at the end of your life. I have always tried to do the right thing. I'll give it to you. Grover Cleveland, the 22nd and the 24th President of the United States. Famous last words and often someone's last words reveal what was important to them in life so for someone like bing crosby golf was important to him someone like pt barnum sales and attendance at one of his shows that was important to him grover cleveland what was important to him I've always tried to do the right thing. Someone's last words often reveal what is important. And the last words of Jesus 
reveal what's important for us today and what isn't important for us today. What isn't important is date setting the second coming. Working out exactly when and where and how Jesus is going to return and, and get it all sorted out. It's, it's not for you to know. And over the course of time, really the last 2,000 years, there's been people who have uh, date-setted when Jesus is going to come back again. And uh, 1988, there, a book came out from uh, a brother on the other side of the Atlantic. Let me put it that way. A Christian man who was a mathematician, and he sort of worked out, and he put into his computer all the sevens in Daniel. And trying to work out exactly when Jesus was going to return. And he worked out that Jesus was going to come back on the 1st of September, 1988. And he published a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Well, people were selling their property. Giving away all their money. And on the 1st of September... A year later, that same man wrote another book. 89 reasons why Jesus will return in 1989. I kid you not. And the 89th reason was because he didn't come last year. <laughs> and people are buying these books. It's not for you to know. And sometimes we can get preoccupied and distracted with doing things and getting involved in things we just don't need to know. And sometimes the enemy gets us distracted actually on good things. It's not always bad things, immorality or sin. Often he'll take a good concept and we can concentrate on that. Well, it's good. It's about the Lord's second coming. And we get caught up with it. Jesus said it's not for you to know. It's not important Leave that with God. There are certain things in life we've got to leave with God and certain things that we have to get involved with. There's certain things that God gets involved with, certain things that we get involved with, and we mustn't mix the two up. What isn't important for us is exactly when Jesus is coming back. The important thing is he is coming back. And the important thing is, before he returns, we've got a job to do. You know, the disciples had some theological questions. When, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom? It's not for you to know. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to get caught up with. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Don't get caught up with date setting and all the details of my return and, the, and the, the future kingdom get caught up with local, national, and international evangelism. And that's where I want to go this evening. The last words of Jesus. And his last words should be our first priority. They say that if you're in the army, I've never been in the army, but in the army, you always obey the last command 
from your commanding officer. And until he gives you a new command, you keep on obeying the last command. The last command of Jesus, wait for the power from on high. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. Don't concentrate on this, concentrate on this. His last words should be our first priority. So five points this evening to ponder, all beginning with the letter P. So it must be anointed. And why P? Because you always have P's on a Sunday. First of all, we see the promise. You shall receive power. Not you may or you might. You shall receive power. And when the Lord makes a promise, he keeps it. And we live in a society, we live in a world, sometimes even in church life, where many broken promises, people don't keep their word. Sometimes intentionally, and sometimes accidentally. But we live in a world and a society where people don't always do what they say they're going to do. And that could be the same in a marriage. We let our wives and our husbands down sometimes. Politicians will let us down, saying, I will do this if you vote for me. And we vote for them, and it often doesn't work out that way. Broken promises. And that's the world that we live in. But when the Lord makes a promise, he always keeps that promise. Always keeps it. He says, I will send my spirit, and he has. He says, I will come again, and he will. He says, I will build my church, and he is. Because when the Lord says something, he always keeps it. And I understand that in the Bible, there's 366 promises of God. One for every day of the year, and even one for a leap year. Isn't that great? It's a God of detail. Because when he makes a promise, he will keep that promise. And the difficulty is, when the Lord gives us a promise, we often want it there and then. So the Lord promises something, and often it's actually for the future. And timing, therefore, is very important. But when the Lord promises something and gives us a word, we want it straight away. Again, that's the world that we live in. We don't want to wait for anything. We're very, very impatient. Everything these days at a click of a button. Have you noticed that? And uh, we have instant coffee and instant um, porridge and microwaves and lastminute.com. When I was growing up, well, when we booked a holiday, actually we, we spent like, nine months planning a holiday. Went to the same place every year, mind you, <laughs> Butlins. Um, but we would plan it for nine months. And we would count down the days and we would get ready for it. And when it came, oh, we were so excited. We'd start packing five weeks before and, and, and looking forward to it. But these days, what do you do? Well, I've got a few days off at the end of this week. Let's, let's get some flights to, to wherever. Let's, let's book a last-minute holiday. Lastminute.com. Because we live in a world where at the click of a button, we get it when we want it. 
And we try to bring that into our Christianity with us. Our culture tries to come into our Christianity. And we press the button, God, you have to do it now. He doesn't work according to our time. He works according to his time. And I want to say, if God has given you a promise, and I just feel this, this evening there are promises all over this, uh, this meeting hall. Uh, God's given you a promise, and it hasn't come to fruition yet. Just keep waiting. Just be patient. Because when we're not patient, we start to take matters into our own hands. Have you ever done that? Well, God, you're taking a bit of time here. Maybe you've forgotten about me. And we start to take it back. And let me help God out. Let me say God doesn't need your help. If he created the world out of nothing, he doesn't need your help with this. He's got it. He's got it. And that was the problem, I think, with Abraham. God promised him a son. You're going to be the father of, of many, many people, the father of many, what the word Abraham uh, means, but there was no son. And so he tried to help God out. And when we try and help God out and speed things along a little bit, we give birth to Ishmael's, not Isaac's. Don't give birth to an Ishmael. Wait for the Isaac. And if God's given you a promise, it will come to pass. He made a promise, you shall receive power. Who are the people to whom the promise is given? He said, you shall receive power. Speaking to the, uh, the first century disciples, and what a motley crew they were. I tell you, if I was choosing a team, you know, Peter and Thomas, they weren't the sort of people that I would choose. But when Jesus was putting his team together, he was very strategic. People of different personalities. People that naturally wouldn't get on with each other. A tax collector and a zealot. Wow, I'll tell you. They didn't normally get on. Zealots were against the Romans. And the tax collectors like Matthew would work for the Romans. But Jesus was very strategic when he brought his disciples together. Different personalities, different backgrounds, different types of people. And Jesus said, this promise is for you. And that's good news tonight, because whatever your background, the good news of the Holy Spirit is for you. It's for you. You might say, well, I don't deserve it. I don't, you know, uh, surely God can't give this to me. It's for you this evening. And it wasn't just for his first century disciples, because in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 2, Peter said, this promise is for you, your children, and your children's children. In fact, all those that the Lord your God will call. So this evening, the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you. And so often we think, well, I don't deserve it. If God really knew you know, where I've come from... <laughs> If God really knew what I'd done in my life, or if this preacher really knew, well, this isn't for me, it is for you. And we see the fulfillment in Acts chapter 2, the coming 
10 days later of the Holy Spirit and the, 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 the prophecy of Joel. And is it just for males? No, it is also for females. Because your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Not just for males, but also for females. Regardless of age, your old men will dream dreams. They'll look back. Your young men will see visions. They'll look forward. So what I'm saying is that regardless of your background, your personality type, regardless of your gender, male or female, regardless of your age, young, old, or a little bit in between, the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you. And people have said, but I'm not good enough. I've literally heard people say that. I'm not good enough to receive this gift. And I want to say that's true because gifts are not deserved. Gifts are not earned. What's earned? Wages are earned. Yes, if I do a week's work, I deserve my wages or these days salary. That's what I've earned. I will get what I have earned. But gifts are different. You don't earn gifts. In fact, you can't earn gifts. If I gave you a gift at Christmas, it's because I really like you, not because you've earned it. Can you see? That's why it says the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's what we've worked for, death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And the Holy Spirit is a gift. It means we have nothing to do with it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift given by grace. And we've already heard tonight about Martin Luther. 500 years uh, on Tuesday, the 31st of October, 1517, when he nailed the 95 Thesis against the door of uh, Wittenberg uh, University Church to debate what was wrong during that time with the Catholic Church. Broke open the, the, the whole thing called the Reformation. Let me say, Reformation actually begins in people. The Reformation could only come because Martin Luther was reformed in his heart. He'd been changed. You can't change the world unless you've been changed. Revival starts in people. You've all gone very quiet now. We often think revival's just going to come down. Oh, there it is. Revival starts in people. When we get revived, society gets revived. The world gets revived. And Martin Luther came to this realization, as Nathan has been saying so excellently tonight, this realization that the gospel is a gift. Grace is a gift. You have nothing to do with it. That actually the gospel is not about trying, but it's everything to do with trusting. And this realization that we're justified by faith. That I don't earn it, I don't work for it by doing all this prayer and fasting and going up, you know, the, the steps on my knees and beating my body. But I'll gain favor with God. That's not how gifts come. 
And I say that tonight because we often feel I've got to be good enough to receive the Holy Spirit. You will never be good enough. You will never be good enough. It's a gift. It's not a wage. It's not a salary. It's a gift. So who is the Holy Spirit given to? People like you and people like me. Whatever our background, our age, male or female, tonight, it's for us. Number three, there we go. It's a promise of power. First of all, we've seen the promise, we've seen the people. Number three, the power. It's a promise of power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Junimus, where today we get the word dynamite from. Now, of course, in those days, they didn't understand what the word dynamite was. Invented many, many years later. But we understand today the word dynamite. That's the word being used there. You will receive dynamite, power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And let me say, if dynamite went off in this building this evening, you would look around. Actually, you might not have a seat to sit on. In other words, if dynamite went off, you would know it. You wouldn't think, oh, I think, I think there was something. You would know it because there's power. You've got to stand up and take notice. You will know it or not. And when you receive the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon your life, you will know it. And guess what? Other people will know it as well. Something happens. For us all, it, it could be different. I remember when I received what we would call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It was Sunday evening at my little sort of Pentecostal church. I was about 16, 17, newly saved through the Billy Graham crusade of Mission England. And um, a little while later, they thought well, Stephen needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I didn't quite understand what it was all about. And they were trying to lead me in the, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it says, say banana backwards and all this sort of stuff. And I, I, didn't, I just didn't get it. And that night at church, nothing happened. And I went home, went to bed early. And I was just lying in bed and I thought I'd missed it. Because I had this mentality that God was only in a certain place at a certain time. And I've got to wait till next Sunday now. Because God can only move on a Sunday, and God can only move in a, in a church building, and God can only move through an ordained minister, and I thought, I'm going to have to wait for another time. And then just that deep impression, actually, I can ask God right now. I don't need to wait another week. I don't need to wait for the, a future time. And I said, Lord, will you fill me tonight right now with your Holy Spirit. I don't understand it all. Let me say 30 odd years later, I still don't understand it all. But Lord, this is a gift that you've got for me, and I receive that gift. 
That's what you do with gifts, isn't it? You just receive them and say, thank you. You don't just turn it away. You, you say, thank you, I receive that gift. And Lord, I receive the gift of your Holy Spirit. And there in my room, I started to speak in a language that I'd never, ever learned. I was no good at languages at school. Okay, but here was a language I'd never learned. Speaking, as we would call it, speaking in, in tongues. And God filled me with his spirit that night, over 30 years ago. And I think now every single day, I, I try to speak in tongues every single day. A wonderful uh, prayer language, wonderful way of building yourself up. And that night, as I was filled with the Holy Spirit, God revealed to me certain things about my future. Certain things about my life. And I actually wrote them down, and somewhere I've still, I've still got those notes. God revealing certain things to me, not for then, but for the future. And now able to look back after 30 years and see some of these things come to pass. My point is this, when I was filled with the Holy Spirit, when the power of God came on me, I was changed. Something happened. When dynamite goes off, something happens. People know. My wife's experience of the Holy Spirit was very different. My wife, Deborah, is from a, we say, a, a more brethren uh, background, a non-Pentecostal background. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit died out with the early church and Right at the beginning, you know, the early church needed the Holy Spirit to sort of kickstart the church and get this aeroplane off the ground. And, but then when the word of God came, you don't need the gifts of the Spirit anymore. That sort of teaching. A brethren Bible college that actually taught that. And that sort of Pentecostals are a little bit weird. I think she came to realize actually Pentecostals are very weird. And um, so a lot of sort of, I would say, wrong teaching, a lot of fear... Um, then she marries a Pentecostal, joins a Pentecostal church, becomes the, the wife of a Pentecostal minister. The family thinks she's lost her mind. And what cult has she got involved with and all this sort of... I remember going over to America once and certain members of her family wouldn't even let me in the house. I didn't like my jokes, I don't think. Or, but they didn't let me in. They thought I was really very, very odd. Of course, I'm not... Of course I'm not. And so there was a lot of fear with Deborah. And one evening, I, I remember it well, over 20 years ago now, she went forward to be prayed for. And as I think someone laid their hand upon her, she fell on the floor. Not copying because she's never seen that happen before. She wasn't into the God channel or anything like that. Never seen this. But as soon as the hand went on her, she went out on the floor. And I think started laughing. And God was dealing with that fear, saying, this is a gift I've got for you. I'm not going to give you something bad. You know, if a, if a son asks a father for something, he's not going to give, you know, a scorpion or a, a stone. You know, and your heavenly father will give you something good. And God was dealing with her, and a few days later, she started to speak in a language that she'd never learnt. My point is this, that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, something happens. You shall receive power 
The word power means ability to do. So you will receive the ability to do what in your own strength you cannot do. You shall receive power. You shall receive the ability. You shall receive boldness. And what do we see with the disciples? What do we see with Peter? The same Peter who denied the Lord those days earlier. It says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and he stood up with the eleven and was bold. The first reference to cricket. He stood up with the eleven and was bold. Oh, you've got to laugh because that's the best I'm going to do tonight. Something happened to Peter. A few weeks earlier, I've never met the man. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. But then Peter, the same Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he stands up is bold, preaches to the crowd, 3,000 people come to Christ. That's not, that's not a bad day's work, is it? That's a good day at the office. That's good to put on the website or in the newsletter. Not 3,000 sermons to see one saved. One sermon, 3,000 people cut to the heart saying, what must we do to be saved? Wow. Oh, for those days again. Why not? Why not? He stood up and he was different. He had a boldness. Acts chapter 4, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what? They went out preaching the word of God boldly. The context of Acts chapter 4, they're being threatened by the authorities. Do not preach in the name of Jesus. If you do, we will put you to death. If you do, then we will put you in a prison. Do not preach in this name. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they go out and they preach even more boldly. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will give you a boldness to do what you cannot do in your own strength. Number four, what's the purpose so what's the purpose of the filling or the power of the Holy Spirit? What's the purpose of the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Let me just say here, as a good Pentecostal, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not primarily to exercise the gifts. I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all nine of them. And we should see more use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But the primary purpose that we are filled with the Holy Spirit is not just to use the gifts. It's not just so we have a good time in our meetings. Now, we all want that. We all love the presence of the Holy Spirit, and there's peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We love the liberty that the Holy Spirit brings, but that's not the primary purpose of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not so that we'll get goosebumps. Ooh, get goosebumps on our goosebumps. That's not the purpose. If we think it is, we've missed it. The purpose of the filling of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, is that you and I might be witnesses. So actually, putting it this way, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, not for us, but for them. I think I'll say that again, because I think that's important. 
We're not filled with the Holy Spirit just for us, but actually for a lost world. It's for them. And sometimes in our meetings, I'm speaking just very generally, I'm not speaking about J28, I'm speaking just very generally as I travel around, we can be very self-centered. It's all about me. It's all about me, Jesus. It's not about you. It's all about them. We are here to reach a lost world. Yes, we're to have good meetings, we're to enjoy our meetings and to be built up, but that's not the only purpose. Somebody once said that the church is the only club that exists for its non-members. Yeah? Every other club you think of, well, you've got to be a member to be part of this club. You're not a member, well, you can't, it's very exclusive. But we exist for our non-members. We're here for them. I remember a couple of weeks ago, maybe months ago now, we were in Scotland and doing a bit of a tour of Scotland, and we went to St. Andrew's Golf, the golf club place. Uh, very exclusive. And I wanted a selfie so I was doing this sort of tour of Scotland, all these famous landmarks. And I wanted to go into the clubhouse at St. Andrews to have just a picture taken. I was in my jeans and everything. And, and uh, you know, I went into the door, through the door. And there were people in there in their blazers and their ties. And uh, I walk in and they start to turn around. And this burly receptionist, not a woman, a man, a burly receptionist, got up and said, excuse me, this is just for members. I said, well, I, I just, you know, I've come from England. And I, <laughs> that probably put him off, but I, <laughs> I, just want a, I just want a picture just to say I've been to St. Andrew's golf, golf House. And he said, sorry, sir, this is just for members. Can you leave? So I got a picture taken outside. Very exclusive. This is, this is for us. What are you doing here? The church should never be like that. We exist not just for ourselves, but we exist for them. And when we forget that, when we make church all about us and how we're going to be happy and we're going to do things our way and what we're comfortable with, we've missed it. Let's not be so exclusive that we forget a lost world. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, not just so that we'll feel good. We're filled with the Holy Spirit so that we might be witnesses to a lost world. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. He did not say, you shall be my theologians. He did not say, you will be my experts. Or you will be my Bible scholars. He says, you will be my witnesses. Let me ask you this question. In a court of law, what does a witness do? It's rhetorical. A witness in a court of law merely says what they have seen and what they have heard. Basically, yes? In a court of law, does a witness need to be an expert in the law? No. 
That's the job of the barrister. The barrister needs to know the law inside out. He's got to fight the case or she's got to fight the case. A witness, when it goes into a court of law, just says, Your Honour, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I experienced, and that's it. They don't need to know all the ins and outs of English law. Thank God. They just say, this is what I saw, this is what I experienced. You shall be my witnesses, not you shall be my experts. I say that because sometimes we feel before we can tell people about Christ, we've got to know the Bible inside out. We've got to know the Greek and the Hebrew, and we've got to know where sort of Cain got his wife from, and did Adam and Eve have a belly button, and all these, who were the Nephilim, and all this sort of thing. What if they ask me a difficult question? Well, I've got to know my Bible inside out before I do anything. If you do that, you'll never do anything, because you will never know all of the Bible. You will never know all about God. I actually think in heaven we're not going to know everything about God. It's a challenge. Because I think I've got to know all about God's ways and how he works before I start witnessing because they might ask me a difficult question. I oh, I look stupid. And that's sometimes why we don't witness. We're called not to be experts. We're called to be witnesses. And that should take the pressure off us. So if we're asked something, we just tell people, this is what I've seen, and this is what I've heard. Well, what about this difficult verse? And I'm just going to tell you what I've seen and what I've heard. Okay? It says of uh, Andrew, in John chapter 1, that after he found Jesus, what did he do? He went off and found his brother, Simon, uh, Simon the fisherman, and he said, I have found the Messiah. He didn't give him a Bible study. He didn't give him the Greek or the Hebrew. He just said, look, I want to introduce you to someone that I've just found. And the found became the finder. Okay. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She went into the village after meeting with Jesus and says, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Didn't know all about the Bible. You know, she got mixed up with the mountains and worship and that sort of thing. She, you know, she didn't quite understand it all. But she'd found someone, and she pointed people to Christ. She was a witness. John chapter 9, the man that was born blind. The Pharisees were getting very theological. Who sinned? Has he sinned? Or his parents? Or whatever. And he says, look, I, I don't understand your questions. All I know is this. Once I was blind, and now I can see. We're not called to be experts. If you know the Bible inside out, hallelujah. Good. It's good to know the Bible. I have to say that, being the vice principal of a Bible college. It's good to learn the scriptures. It's good to know a little bit of Greek, maybe, a little bit of Hebrew, to sort of really understand what's being said. But don't think I've got to know everything before I can be a witness. You can be, if you found Jesus, or if Jesus has found you, you can go off and find someone else. And say, look, I don't know all your answers, but come see a man who told me all 
I ever did. Witnesses, you shall be witnesses. And then finally, the places to witness. So we've got the promise, we've got the people, we've got the power, the purpose. What about the place? Where are we to be witnesses? Jesus, again, is being very specific. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, notice he's not saying Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. But he's saying, and. Because sometimes we feel, I've got to win, I've got to win my town before I'll go anywhere else. And once I've won my town, then I'll go a bit wider. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying then, he's saying and. In other words, we witness to the world at the same time as witnessing to our community. Okay? We're to do it all. National, international, and local. Witnesses in Jerusalem. Where's Jerusalem? Where's your Jerusalem? It's your locality. It's where you live. It's where you work. It's where you study. And isn't that a difficult place to witness? I don't know about you, I can easily get on a plane and go into the streets of a, I don't know, Macedonia or somewhere and preach Christ, that's fine because they don't know me and I can get back on a plane and come home. But when it's amongst people that know you and work with you and study with you and live with you, that's very, very hard. But we're to be witnesses in our locality. That is difficult, but that's where we're to be a, a witness. We're to be witnesses in Judea. Where's our Judea? It's our nation. The nation that we're part of. Do we show an interest in our nation? Or is it, well, I'm just going to concentrate on South Normanton? You know, do we take an interest in what's happening in Britain? We need to take an interest. We need to understand the times that we are living in. We're living in very difficult times in our nation. We need to be a witness in our nation. Samaria, what Samaria? Samaria is amongst the people in our locality that are from a different culture. Maybe the despised, maybe those that are different, those from a, a different religion, those from a different culture, different background, living where we live. So we don't have to get on a, a plane, they're actually here. And all around us, people from different cultures. And we need to minister to them and find creative ways of ministering to those from other nations and other religions on our very doorstep. That's a great challenge. Remember when we were living in Bristol, we lived in a, an area that was with a lot of Muslims and uh, in our street, uh, there were several Muslims, and there was this lady called Mrs. Malik, 
who lived a, a couple of doors down, and uh, her husband had died, and she had three sons, three very tall sons, burly sons, who really protected her and looked after her. And uh, especially my wife, Deborah, much more than me, thought, how can we get into this home? How can we, how can we minister to our Samaria, someone unreached that's on our very doorstep, just a few doors down? And uh, Deborah likes to cook. So De Deborah decided to um, cook something very either British or very American and knocked on the door and took it to Mrs. Malik on a, a plate and uh, couldn't get through the door because the sons were there, you know. Okay, what is it you want? Uh, we've just got some food for your mother and yourself, of course. Thank you. And then shut the door on us. Notice a couple of days later, or a week later, there was a knock at the door. And I think it was one of the sons to start with, brought the same plate back, but with some of their food on it. Some Pakistani food, I think. And um, for several weeks, if not months, actually, the plate went backwards and forwards <laughs> in Old Cove Road. And I think as Deborah went over, she got a little bit further and then a little bit further, and then she got into the hallway and into the living room and started to befriend Mrs. Malik. I think we were able to give her a tract and give her something to read, and, and then we moved from Bristol to come up north. A couple of, I think, I, I guess a couple of years ago, we went back to that street and we thought, well, let's just knock on the door and see if Mrs. Malik is still alive. And and uh, Deborah went and knocked on the door, and she was overjoyed to see Deborah all those years later, must be about 15 years later, and still recognized her. And here was a lady that would have nothing to do, very shut off, very exclusive, very afraid in many ways, but as a way of getting in. I think there are keys, you see. There are keys that will unlock situations, and we need to just find what those keys are. What's going to unlock this situation? How can I get into this home and, and build a relationship with these people? Where's your Samaria? Samaritans, in biblical times, of course, very looked down on. No, the Jews didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans. Samaritans came about because there was intermarriage between Jews and Gentiles. And, you know, Jews going from the north to the south to Jerusalem for a feast, they would go around Samaria, had hours or if not days onto their journey. They didn't want to go through Samaria. They wanted to go around Samaria. They felt so strongly about that. But interesting that Jesus actually stopped in Samaria and spoke not just to a Samaritan, but to a woman. And it would seem an immoral woman, breaking all these, down all these barriers. And uh, the Bible is interesting, isn't it? It says the disciples came back and it says, and they were surprised to see Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. I bet they were. Because it wasn't done. But Jesus crossing those barriers, here was someone that needs God. What am I saying? What's your Samaria? What's the people in your location, in your school, in your workplace, on your street, that actually are from another nation, a different culture? Maybe that are very afraid. Maybe uh, society looks down upon them, no time for them. How can you minister to your 
some area. And I trust that God will give you some ideas. And then finally, the ends of the earth. We are to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. While we're in this meeting this evening, half the world's population have still not heard about Jesus. What's that? Three to four billion people have not heard about the first coming of Jesus. We love the second coming of Jesus, don't we? But they've not even heard about the first coming of Jesus. They might have heard about Coca-Cola, but they've not heard about Jesus. Half the world's population, 17,000 people groups, tribes, that are completely unreached with the gospel. 3,000 languages that have absolutely no Bible in those languages. Now we rejoice all that God is doing. We rejoice that we can have good meetings together and we can meet in this way. We go to a local church. Half the world's population can't do that. There is no local church. They are completely unreached. And in the midst of our ministry to our Jerusalem and to our Samaria and our nation, We've got to minister to our world. We've got to do something. For some of you, it might mean going on a missions trip. And we had a testimony this morning from a, a guy that came back from Macedonia, Jeff. Is it 71 years of age? And he stood up and testified in church this morning, the first mission trip he ever went on. 71 years of age. Don't say you're too old. Oh, leave it to the younger ones. If you can get on a plane, <laughs> all right, you can go on a mission trip. Just for three days, I think it was. You can do something. If you can't get on a plane, you can't go, then show an interest in world missions. Pray, give. Give to those that maybe are able to go, but have an interest in the ends of the earth. Because Jesus said, this gospel shall be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. That vision in, in Revelation before the throne with people from every tribe and kindred and, 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 and creed all there before the throne, worshipping the Lamb. So why do we receive the Holy Spirit? Why have the promise? Why have the promise of power? It's not just for ourselves. It's for a lost world. Let's never, ever forget that. And maybe God is challenging some of you to get more involved in witnessing and more involved in, in evangelism and in mission. And you might say, well, I'm not, a, I'm not an evangelist. You know, I'm not an Ephesians 4.11 evangelist. Have you met an Ephesians 4.11 evangelist? You know, they just have to say a few words and people get saved. They can preach from the telephone directory and people will get saved. It's quite amazing, the anointing, because God's gifted them that way. I wish I could do that. I've tried to copy Billy Graham on many, many occasions. I've written down the sermons. I practiced. You know, I put on the American accent and the suit and pointed the finger. If you came in a coach, you, it'll wait for you and all that. And nothing happens because God hasn't gifted me to be an evangelist in the Ephesians 4.11 sense of the word. But I'm to be a witness. And we're all to be witnesses. I might say, I don't know the Bible inside out. Well, hallelujah for that. 
There's only one person that you need to know to be a witness, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've had an experience of God, you can bear witness to the world. Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world.